The Liberating Arts seeks to articulate the enduring relevance of a liberal arts education during a time of pandemic and protest. Through our online platform, we will host a series of conversations with writers, academics, institutional leaders, and public intellectuals about the nature of the liberal arts, their formational purpose, and their moral significance in a time of great cultural disruption. We hope to inspire viewers and listeners to learn more about the liberating effects of these arts on their own lives. To find out more, please visit www.theliberatingarts.org or find us on Twitter, Facebook, Spotify, or YouTube. Uh, we are pleased at the Liberating Arts to have John Baskin with us. Um, let me introduce him before we uh, begin our conversation. John is instructor and associate director for the MA program in creative publishing and critical journalism at the New School for Social, Re Social Research. He's also a founding editor at The Point. I have uh, that uh, with me. I actually have just a number of copies here. I'm a faithful subscriber. Don't have the new issue yet, but I'm looking forward to it. The Point is a magazine of philosophical essays and criticism. And he's also the author, as of last year, of Ordinary Unhappiness, the therapeutic fiction of David Foster Wallace, which was published with Stanford University Press. So there are a number of reasons why we wanted to talk to you, John. But uh, the prompt, uh, for those of us associated with this project, was your op-ed in the New York Times with, and help me pronounce it, is it Anastasia? Anastasia Berg, yeah. Uh, Anastasia Berg co-authored with her uh, a piece called How to Reopen the American Mind. Um, so we're going to use that as our prompt. So why don't you share a little bit about what prompted the piece on your side and the sort of basic argument of it. So the piece was prompted in part because we actually have a book coming out uh, of the point's first 10 years, uh, which is called The Opening of the American Mind. Um, and uh, the title has many meanings for us, but of course one of them is uh, refers back to Alan Bloom's uh, famous The Closing of the American Mind, also written on the University of Chicago campus where we started The Point, uh, you know, close to 25 years later. And um, so, we, so we took in the introduction of the book a kind of, a, a, a kind of uh, opportunity to think, to rethink about that book from our current vantage point and what Bloom was saying about the humanities and the liberal arts and the university and we wanted to really try to look at it sort of beyond some of the most hot button culture war issues that came out of it. Although as the response to the op-ed will show, we are still far from beyond uh, many of those issues. But it was funny, like uh, going back and reading it myself, I felt kind of uh, distant from those kind of issues, you know, the sort of canon wars of the 90s that followed that book, uh, which seem in many ways over now for better or worse. But, um, but, I, uh, but, but I, I think that Anastasia and I both, as we went back and read the book and were thinking about its relevance to the points project, were struck by a couple things, which we then tried to convey uh, in a shorter form in the op-ed. And one of them was a kind of, um, on the positive sense, a kind of confidence that Bloom had about the importance and the centrality of the humanities almost, I mean, many would call it an arrogance, um, but a kind of real confidence that this was, you know, what, what students were doing in humanistic education was central to democratic society, to the good life, to anything that we value, you know, as intellectuals, certainly, but also as human beings. Um, and that this was something that actually could be detached from his sort of sometimes blinkered uh, faith in a very specific group of books uh, that he felt were the only books that, 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 that should belong to that canon. But the, that even, even if he was not always able to move beyond that, there was something in the way that he talked about sort of the life of ideas and the life of the mind and what the university offered people that was something that uh, some of us who have gone to the university since then feel has been uh, depleted or lost for various reasons, um, which we were only able to sort of give a little bit to each one in the, in the, in the, in the op-ed. Some are external 
probably the biggest ones are external, having to do with financing and the economy and the corporatization of the university. And some are perhaps internal. And of course, it's more controversial to talk about the internal ones, at least among academics, um, that have to do with certain postmodern modes of reading uh, that um, I've written about before. And you know, I'm sure we'll, we'll get to talking about. So that was, that was sort of one thing we wanted to think about is what, what is there something from this book in that tone of, of confidence about the value of the humanities that could be preserved, even if we don't necessarily want to preserve the exact uh, shape it took for Bloom. But then the second thing, something that we, that we found ourselves sort of critical of Bloom of in the book and in the subsequent conversation was his, his seeming... Um, sort of assumption that this idea of the life of the mind really was uh, locate had to be located in the university only uh, in American life that this was the one place you know he had this famous thing I think he said it in the New York Times op-ed that he wrote based on the book where he said something like we've got four years you know between when they're in that with their parents and when they go into the economy we've only got them for four years and this is the only chance to make these people these like uh, benighted Americans you know <laughs> think of something higher than economic success or, or, or whatever their, their selfish interests are. And I think that we wanted, thinking about the project of The Point, which was very much from the beginning, a magazine that was intended to sort of take humanism, humanistic education very seriously, but also take it as something that could be detached from an academic context. We wanted to think about how the magazine itself and, and many other trends that we've seen in the culture, I mean, it's not just the magazine, I think there has been a move in general toward more public humanities uh, in the last 10 or 15 years, which, which is great. Uh, and um, we wanted to think about the ways in which, uh, you know, so, so that was sort of the second part of the op-ed was to speak about what it really meant to have humanistic education in a democratic society. And in a society where even now many people are shocked, you know, only about a third of Americans graduate from a four-year college. So the idea that this could be the be-all, and, and, and most of them don't take humanities in any substantial way during those four years. And there are reasons, good reasons for that in many cases. They have to, they prioritize other things. And so I think we were interested in thinking about how you could take this kind of confidence in the humanities but also extend it into, into areas that are beyond just those four years of liberal arts education. And so that was sort of the latter half of the op-ed was trying to think about and suggest some of the kinds of things that are already happening and things we think could be expanded in our society to, to, to make humanistic thinking and reflection sort of a part of our entire lives, at least to have that option open to people uh, as opposed to this four-year period where, where you get it. Yeah, that's really helpful. Thank you for that uh, that overview. So I hear, well, I'll, I'll add just anecdotally, I, I have some sympathy, <laughs> I have some sympathy for Bloom's view about the four years. I sometimes feel uh, as a professor that if I don't assign this book or these books, I know I know that they will never be exposed. <laughs> so instead of assigning this number, maybe I'll add one more, maybe I'll add one more. But um, yeah, that myopia about, about, about the four years, that's not only not universal for most Americans, but uh, if, if that's all we have uh, for humanistic education, then, then the game's up. So there are the humanities or the liberal arts. Uh, there is the sort of the crisis of higher education, which mm -hmm. uh, your, your piece uses the pre-existing crisis, yeah. uh, uh, which sort of the pandemic doubles down on and exacerbates in many ways as, as a, a launching pattern, a uh, point of departure for thinking about, on the one hand, we should be worried about the crisis. And on the other hand, what you just said, uh, the crisis might be an opportunity because if we do focus um, really in a parochial way on higher ed exclusively as the last bastion, then, um, then even if we succeeded, we've failed because we've, we've reserved uh, the goods of the humanities uh, to, to these specific institutions and exclusively to the students uh, who attend there. 
Yeah, and, and yeah, that's right. I sort of left out one of the the sort of news peg for the op-ed, which was obviously we're going through this coronavirus right now. There are articles every day about the apocalyptic things happening in the humanities. And, you know, I should be clear, I think some people found the op-ed a little bit callous, uh, as if it was saying, you know, so what, you know, a, goodbye to the academic humanities. I don't feel that way at all. I think the academic humanities still do a lot of good and in many cases are the best chance that people have certainly in society as it is today, as you say, there's certainly no guarantee that they will get it, that students will get this kind of opportunity either in secondary school, uh, in their churches, in their, in their, in their book, you know, in their professional experience or in their lives outside of the university. Many people don't. I mean, that's just a fact of the matter. Um, and, but I think that, so, you know, I don't, we certainly would like there to be more public spending on, on higher education. We think it's, especially in more, uh, you know, non-elite schools, I think like th these are things that, uh, you know, I would certainly be for, but we were also, we were, the, the, the piece was framed in a way by a strategic point that goes beyond, that's a little different, I guess, from what I said. Obviously, I really believe that people should have these opportunities throughout their life for humanistic education. And that's just something that ought to be available in a democratic society. But we were also trying to say something about the fact that the appeal to the public based on, of, of the importance of saving the humanities or to politicians, which in a way is an appeal to the public, Right. If it is only based on the sort of academic departments, which many Americans will never have contact with and feel alienated by in certain ways because of some of the directions they've gone in the last 30 to 40, well, maybe they always felt alienated by them for very different kinds of reasons, but um, that, 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 uh, that appeal is likely not to find massive popular support. And so the idea was something like to try to expand that expanding our imagination about what the role of humanistic education is in an American life is something that is not only important for, uh, you know, for in itself, but also would actually be strategically um, a good idea for, for people in, who are interested in sort of the, the life and survival and expansion yeah. of the humanities. And yeah, you know, th there were things, I mean, we, yeah, well, I'll leave it there for now. But that's <laughs> no, and yeah. I, I think a charitable read of your piece would 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 understand that the two that y'all stip y'all not y'all don't just stipulate you presuppose uh, as a given that the external threats to the academy and to the humanities uh, are uh, need to be opposed. And that you support things like public funding and so so on. I mean, I, that seems self self evident to me. Uh, and that, but as you just say, that you you go in a strategic. You, so you go in a prudential and in a principled direction. The principled direction I took, and we'll talk about this more in a moment, is that in a democratic society, uh, are is humanistic education for an elite few, or is or can we imagine it being for the many? That's the principled, and that's sort of and then that guides the prudential, which is if it is in in fact the case that we are facing real threats, and those threats are having real world consequences, closing departments, closing programs, closing colleges, then what are we going to do about it? Even if even if on the other side of these threats uh, there could be renewal, um, but even just in pure terms of economics and demography, there are going to be fewer students, there are going to be these closings. And so, as you argue, uh, what, what if we imagined the, the sort of bound, the institutional bounds, uh, uh, not, not just guarding, but um, providing, providing the conditions for the flourishing of the humanities, uh, what if they weren't limited to uh, the, the college campus? So, uh, a let, me, let me ask a general question about uh, about the humanities uh, or the liberal arts, and then we'll move into the enemies or the threats that you see, as you say, external and internal, and then to the sort of small d, uh, profoundly democratic vision of humanistic education. So everybody has trouble defining the liberal arts, defining what they're for. Um, one quote from the piece 
uh, y'all y'all refer to um, humanities as a continuing dialogue about how we should live together, and you offer a variety of riffs on that sort of um, definition. So, what would you say? Um, not not to the politician um, who may or may not give you funding, but to the, just the ordinary, open-minded citizen, neighbor, as you say, churchgoer, uh, et book club member, etc. About what the humanities are, what the liberal arts are, what are they for? What are they good for? Why do they matter? Yeah. So two things, I guess I would I would say. Um, one is that something we actually say in the longer introduction to the book where we have more space to talk about this is sort of really the humanities are very basic to your life every time when you decide what to eat who to vote for who to love what to worship uh these are all things that cast you into the humanities they are all things that raise unavoidable questions about what you value and why and and what the other options are to value and why other people value those that are um i think just fundamental to any human life how to parent how to you know these are these are questions that uh you will have to deal with whether you whether you are take humanistic education or not and there is i you know i'm aware there are some people that, that feel this way of talking about it is somehow to ground it into self-help or something I'm not really opposed to that idea. I mean, I think the humanities are self-help in a very elevated sense. Like they are a way of they are a way of thinking through our lives. And if we can't speak of them in that way, uh, and, and I think they're recognized as such to the extent that they're, you know, by by actually a broad public, like, you know, um, there's a sort of common sense idea that yes, these are important decisions we have to make. And it's not a bad thing to read things about the, some of the best things people have written about how to how they make these decisions or how they think about these values. Um, so that's sort of like the most like on the ground, like important, just the extent to which the humanities are unavoidable in our lives. And so, uh, you know, the more chances we get to reflect on them and take a step back and think about these kind of grounding choices in our lives, the better. Um, the second thing I'd say, and this goes a little bit to um, something else that was controversial in the op-ed, which is this whole notion of the great books. Now, we say twice in the op-ed, this is not about the great books. We're not saying we need to go back to the great books or that anyone needs to read the great books. That didn't stop a lot of people from saying, this is an op-ed about the great books, you know, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. What, what I think is true, though, is that there's something, you know, so I, I went to undergrad at Brown, which was as far from the great books as you could get in the way I was educated. And then I went to graduate school at this University of Chicago Committee on Social Thought, where there is a sense that you are um, engaging in a dialogue, like you said, about the good life, which is encapsulated in certain books that are in dialogue with one another. And I think that um, something that something I think is really important to what the point does and to it again to sort of our society that I think is encapsulated in that way of thinking about the humanities as a dialogue between uh, it, it, that, that's encapsulated in the sort of old great book way of teaching the great books is that is the notion of a sort of deep sense of the pluralism of human values of the idea that there really are incommensurate values that are defensible, that are reasonable, that can be that that have been defended by great thinkers and writers, and um, and that kind of that I think is a kind of working your way through that dialogue and trying doing your best to actually understand those different perspectives and see the sense in them, which is something that University of Chicago undergraduates still do in the core, but very few undergraduates do anymore in the humanities. I think is something that is. Um, really like a kind of foundational training for living in a pluralistic society um, and something that speaks to many of the deepest kinds of problems that everyone's always talking about in our political and social life of the sort of uh, polarization and hatred of other points of view. Um, and so that's, that's a second thing that I think is maybe specific to a certain way of thinking about the humanities that I would want to defend. Uh, again, apart from what books it involves, but that has to do with this idea that one thing the humanities do teach you is a sort of um, about the, the deep pluralism of human values. Um, so that, that's sort of the other, that's, that's the other. And that is something we try 
to sort of do in the point too as a kind of model of trying to show you can have this kind of dialogue. So the, the core curriculum is not the only way to inculcate th that idea, I hope, but, um, but it is one way that is that gets kids when they're 18 years old and, and I think is, is successful from what I've seen. Right. And, and I think there's, there's a very modest way, it seems to me, and you've, it sounds like you've read, you've read your replies, you've read your comments. Uh, so, <laughs> you, know, you know, all the people who disagree with you. And of course, uh, they're out there. It seems like there's a very, a very modest way to articulate this, what you've just done, which is reading not the great books, but reading great books in general, ancient books, books in different languages from different cultures. As you say, you're not submitting yourself to the rightness of uh, of a capital C canonical text, you're you're giving yourself over for a time to to sit at the feet of someone and learn and to ask questions and at the end of the day reserving the right to disagree where you uh, even as you learn and that and that in that disagreement uh, and that contestation that's that's the best kind of that's the best kind of uh, learning and even Bloom who you know loves his Melville, Faulkner, and McCarthy. There, there is no, there is no like right reading of those texts that secures the right way to view the world. Uh, I mean, you find a thousand, a thousand perspectives inside of Moby Dick alone, right? Yeah. Um, well, I think, I think that Bloom is, Bloom was a huge. Um, I mean, he he was a huge advocate of this idea, the pluralism of values that you find in this tradition. I think there's a there's a criticism of Bloom to say he maybe didn't always live up to it. Yeah. in his own sort of uh, way of talk, you know, did he really take seriously the challenges to some of his own really deeply held beliefs about the right way to read these books right. and sort of what their ultimate message was? I think that he definitely is vulnerable to that criticism, as are some other conservatives who stand up, you know, in theory for the pluralism of values, but actually don't really listen very much to people who have values other than their own. But yeah, I mean, I, and I think you, you hit on something that to me, and it goes back to the hatred of literature essay a bit, is so important because it has to do with the way you approach books, um, regardless of what books they are, and, and sort of do you approach them in the first place as you are coming to enlighten the book, you are coming to find out how this older book was wrong at, at, by, the, by the measure of your own values, or that you are coming to the book as something which you can learn from in the first place and that before you get to the critical part, you really spend time because this book has been chosen because there's some sense that there's wisdom in it and that you should first spend time figuring out what that is and doing your best to give the most generous um, reading of this, not because, you know, because that's actually the best way to learn from it. And, um, and, and also I think speaks to the, to the point, yeah, that I made before that it's a way of sort of inhabiting these other ways of, ways of ways of thinking that may be quite foreign to you that I think is very good practice for living in a, in a pluralistic society where there are actually people that that live their lives by these values who may be your neighbors. <laughs> and, and maybe and, and, and even the emphasis which I used and then you used as well on learning is almost taking a, taking a step too far because the uh, we don't even read we like I don't read novels typically in order to learn something. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, you might, what you might find yourself doing is falling in love and you fall in love with this text or this author or this viewpoint or just a character within it or what have you. Uh, and in falling in love, you realize I've fallen in love with this, but I do also, uh, I, sh I, I don't share, this doesn't mean that I share uh, right. totalizing perspective of the author. It doesn't mean that I agree with the author, but what I've done is I've encountered another human being, just like I do in the world, but in the privacy of my own inwardness, the privacy of spending time with the book, I'm doing it in a much different way, sometimes uh, maybe less intimate, sometimes more intimate than you might with another living human being face yeah. to face. And, yeah. and that kind of affection, that kind of encounter produces something that is that goes beyond learn learning information about the differences that make up the world yeah for sure i think that's well or you might say part of the learning is yeah. Yeah. A kind yeah. of a kind of affection or captivation yeah. you know i love the wittgenstein idea of being captivated by a picture of yeah. the world of, of, of how to see human life right. and um i think the more pictures you have the experience of being captivated by there, there's a there's a benefit to that and it, and it shows you and it allows you to you know even if you then 
disenchant yourself with that view over time because you read something else <laughs> that captivates you in a different way. I think that's an extremely um, educative experience. Yeah, that's right. And, it, and the, the difference is, because it is, of course, learning in one sense, it's second person. It's I, thou learning. It's encounter, mm -hmm. not text, textbook style learning about such these such and such people over here but it, it's some kind of the nature right or here are the three tenets of this view you right. know you don't become a marxist because you because you learn oh these are the four ideas you you read a marxist who captivates you right. you know right. with their vision yeah. of the world and i yeah. think that's you know right i mean that's yeah. what yeah marx is a preacher he's trying to he's trying to he's trying to he's trying to get your soul you know <laughs> he doesn't want you to have new information in your brain yeah um Okay, so that's helpful, and that's a nice segue. So uh, you've just referenced um, a piece you wrote for the point uh, that was published earlier this year called "On the Hatred of Literature," um, and uh, one of the things you outline in there is, in some of your training, at least, and certainly, I'm not in uh, I'm not in English and lit, so this is not my world. Um, but <clears throat> for the last few uh, decades, um, uh, you you report a kind of you ubiquitous sensibility, which is um, that literature exists to be the means or the instrument of justice, of social change, of activism. And one reads it for that purpose and one judges it uh, by the extent to which it uh, achieves or can be made to serve those ends. And so an ancient or a modern text it doesn't matter. Uh, it is good to the extent that it serves or can be put to serve those ends, and it is not good to the extent that it does not. Um, and this this uh, instrumentalization, exhaustive and comprehensive instrumentalization, is what you write about as "quote unquote" the hatred of literature. So maybe say a bit uh, more about that essay uh, and what you're talking about there, and then how this is one of the internal threats that you've identified to the flourishing of the humanities. Yeah, so I mean, the hatred of literature obviously was to some extent a rhetorical exaggeration and it was based on this Ben Lerner book that he'd written, The Hatred of Poetry, yeah. which you know, becomes part of the, part of the essay. Um, but it did speak to something that you know, I really felt when I was at Brown in the, in the early 2000s. And you know, I don't even know, you said instrumental to activism, I mean, at that time, in terms of a lot of these postmodern trends, activism wasn't even really on the table. It was like, I don't know what it was. Like there wasn't really like, a, it was instrumental to some kind of ideological critique. Uh, it, was, it was instrumental to politics in some sense, but not even in the activist like pragmatic sense. It was a, very distant from that in many ways, but there was some kind of um, sense that you were sort of ideologically conditioning or deconditioning people through this, through these modes of critique and freeing them from various master narratives, um, uh, systems of value that had privileged certain groups and certain texts. And um, that, that's what reading was good for, you know, um, and that's what reading literature was good for. I mean, uh, and so this was very powerful when I was in college. I mean, I should say that even within English departments, there has been, um, pushback against this, particularly in the last 10 years or so. Um, there are people like Rita Felsky who wrote this book, The Limits of Critique, and Toral Moy, who I've worked with, and a lot of critics who I respect who have started to, who have started to talk about, um, although they, they wouldn't use as blunt of instruments as I do in talking about it, but talk about some of the limitations of this way of, um, of thinking about literature and to try to introduce new forms of, uh, to say, look, like appreciation is a legitimate critical uh, stance to take toward a, toward a book. Um, I mean, it's funny that that has to be argued for, but within the discipline, um, it did. Uh, so, you know, so those, um, so yeah, so I mean, th that was, and, and that was what I, I think I and I was not the only one at, at Brown at the time who found this way of talking about literature really alienating. Um, Many of us had come, came into the reason you study English is because you usually had some kind of encounters, as you describe it, and you know of love, of of infatuation with literature when you're when you're in high school or younger. And 
I think there was a kind of shock getting, and they didn't present this as like one way to study literature. It was like, this is what you do to be, right. uh, to be an academic in right. literature. You know, I don't, deconstruction may have its place. Critique has its place. These can all be tools in the right circumstances. You know, I really, I, I believe that, but the, um, and, and I should say like, we, I'd actually be interested to talk to you about this because you made this point about theology. There's always been a question of what an English department does and what literature's relationship to the university is and sort of how you can teach literature at all. Because there's a certain way you and I are talking about, well, if it's just an experience of love between the reader and the, and the book, what's a professor, like what's the professor's role? Right, and, right. It's almost so like I, a, it's a romantic sensibility. Like, get it out of, get it out of the sterile classroom. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I mean, yeah. I mean, someone could say to us, like, well, okay, then just don't go to English classes <laughs> or or theology classes. Like, like, why? What, maybe, maybe you know. But if, if we're going to study it in an academic setting, shouldn't we be using these critical methods? I think that's a serious question, and I, you know, I don't, I don't know that I have like the the perfect answer to it. There's all, there's been a sort of succession of techniques in English departments going back to the new critics in the 40s, you know, uh, that are sort of, in a way, all answer the question, what am I doing in an English class, as opposed to just reading on my own. Um, so I think this is a hard question. But I also, you know, I, I also think that some of the sort of um, ways in which the postmodern uh, deconstructionist critics who took their cues from the French theorists, the way that they answered it and which spread very widely uh, throughout American and Anglo-American English departments, I, you know, that's where I think we got, where, where they really tipped over into this thing where there was a kind of hostility toward the texts um, yeah. that went beyond even just saying, okay, we're gonna analyze them, you know, and go beyond love, but uh, that, that really started to feel like, you know, our job is that, you know, there was the famous phrases, the hermeneutics of suspicion. Yeah. Our job is to go in and convict these texts of, yeah. their, of their flaws. And that seemed, that's where to me, I, I, I thought of that term hatred. There's a kind of, it really felt like the opposite of love, not just, not just a complication of it, but we are gonna, we are gonna like, debunk your love or your romanticization of these texts. And um, that sort of felt like a big part of the point of what yeah. they were doing. Yeah, um, so if, we'd, if, we were to, if we were to think about internal threats and if what we've just identified is one uh, from the left, which is a kind of uh, exhaustively ideological um, mm -hmm. as you say, it, you're right. I mean, I take your point. It's not necessarily pointed towards activism, but it is some kind of political totalization uh, of the text uh, as ideology. If that's the th internal threat from the left, uh, one of the things you point to, and I'll read a quote here in a second, um, from the right is it's a different kind of uh, instrumentalization, more in the Weberian sense that all this is good for, um, put simply, is uh, like getting a job, you know, economics. Uh, that kind of rationalization. So, so one of the things uh, y'all write there in the piece is you say Bloom's argument was not reducible to his case for the great books. So there's your, one of your caveats. One of the two. Yes. Yeah. His deeper point was about authority. Like many of the thinkers in the canon that he asked his students to grapple with, Bloom understood the vulnerability of democratic institutions to the forces of technocracy, greed, materialism, and an immoderate individualism. If the university did not continue to be valued above all for its capacity to introduce America's future leaders to a robust dialogue about the virtuous life and the just society, he warned, it was clear what other masters it would come to serve. And you mentioned uh, in one other place that the irony is the way that academic departments, including humanistic departments, not just like STEM, fall prey to, quote, conceptions of humanistic education that privilege scientific knowledge accumulation, political activism, and the cultivation of, scare quotes, analytical skills thought to be prized in Silicon Valley and places like that. So maybe talk a little bit about that. You refer very ominously to the other masters <laughs> that, 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 that uh, will be served um, by higher ed, by humanistic education, uh, in the absence of treating the humanities and the liberal arts as, as this privileged uh, and capacious site for um, conversation and reflection on the good life. 
on the on the virtues and the just society. So say a little bit more about that. Yeah, well, I think that I mean, and this is something that again was sort of um, interesting to go back and read Bloom because um, Bloom, obviously, the sort of proximate attack that he starts with his book with that sort of launches the culture wars is relativism, and this is an attack that's coming from the left, a kind of you know the relativism of values, which is going to destroy everything he thinks is valuable in in the humanities. But one of the reasons he thinks this is so damaging is he says, look. I get these students, they're relativistic about values, they have this kind of whatever attitude, and, and they study for four years and then they go on and be bankers. Right. Because, because if, the, if you're just relativistic, at the end of the day, why not just do you know, what makes the most money? And, and, uh, and, and, what, and, and we live in a society, I mean, he's writing this at the, toward the end of the Reagan years, we live in a society that's intensely capitalistic and that, and that um, you know, he was very aware that the forces of greed and capitalism and the way this would sort of um, influence, you know, he was most concerned about elites, but students of all kinds was very apparent to him and top of mind. It comes up a lot in the book. And so, but there was a connection for him between the two things. And the connection was something like, if we lose the idea that the humanities are really offering like fundamental alternatives about how to think of the good life, better alternatives than, oh, it's just for, uh, you know, my pleasure or, or, or to make money. Um, if we lose that idea, the, 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 these, other, these other ideas are quite powerful in our society. Technocracy, greed, scientism, which was not something he talked that much about, but I think is something we, uh, is a you know we, we talk about today when you know another trend in English departments for instance in the last 20 years was this sort of cognitive humanities this idea that we should humanities should be about brain science and learning more about the way the brain works this is another thing science is another very powerful value in our society but I think Bloom saw and, and I think many humanists today would also see that like it's not it's 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 not what we're doing when we're reading literature and reading philosophy. There, there's something that there are different values at stake there. So and we wouldn't want them to be organized by scientism. So I think that um, yeah, I just think for him there was a connection between those things, and that's sort of the that's sort of the claim we're making in the op-ed. The internal threats is that is that this sort of in some cases the deliberate undermining of the authority of humanistic education often for leftist reasons, uh, you know, to break down certain kinds of hierarchy and, and sometimes good reasons. I mean, there were good reasons to diversify. The, the canon and academia didn't need to be diversified. There were reasons to question, you know, the makeup of syllabuses and all these things. And there have been some good results from that. But there is also uh, this danger of sort of, you know, I like to say, one thing I like to say, it's like the canon wars, I think were great in a way. These were people really arguing over what books should be in the canon. That was great. What was not so great is 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 what happened when those when when the, when the discussion just collapsed and people decided, well, you know, maybe we just don't even need a canon and we should just sort of like, you know. So I, I think that in in the years since then, there's been a kind of often just a move away from any idea that the humanities should exert authority. Uh, as I talk about, and, and, and almost an allergy even to the term authority with a lot of liberals, um, you know, and I, and I think that's a mistake because authority is not something you can write out of human life and human society. And if, you, and if these things aren't seen as having authority, something else will step in to fill the gap. And that's what, and that's what I think, what I think Bloom saw. Right. And moreover, complementing that point, it isn't so much, and I'm just, I'm representing myself, not you, uh, it's not so much that the humanities uh, have authority. It would be interesting to explore what that means. It's that one of the one of the many goods of humanistic education is it is that it endows individuals and communities with the kind of resolve and wherewithal to resist implicit but extraordinarily powerful authorities like Silicon Valley, like technocracy, like scientism, and so you. You're given this reservoir of uh, resistance material, as it yeah. were, and that's not that's not to instrumentalize it again to say that well, okay, so it's good to the extent that it does that, but it is one of the things that it does. 
um, because yeah. it does it it expands. It can obviously yeah. this this isn't magic. It's not it's not automatic, but it expands the horizon of your uh, imagination of the alternatives that you can imagine to the status quo and to the proposals that seem like um, common sense. But if you've read books and ideas from other periods and other cultures, you realize this isn't self-evident at all. Right, right. So, you know, there's, there's a funny story. Someone sent me this article after the op-ed that I didn't know about, or maybe we would have talked about it. Uh, I'm going to bungle a lot of the details, but Bell Telephone in like the 70s or uh, they, 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 they had a lot of people working for them who were not college educated and they were starting to move up into the upper reaches of the company. And there was a theory that they needed to give them some of the liberal arts education so that they would be more flexible uh, employees and thinkers. And, but I don't know how it got decided what the curriculum was, but they ended up doing like a really ambitious, like kind of great books curriculum. It ended with Ulysses, where they read <laughs> Ulysses for several weeks, but they also read Plato and whatever. And um, what they found is the people who were in this program began to work less. <laughs> because they started to see and they would report on surveys. Yeah, I've realized like money's really not the most important thing. There are other things I should be doing. And they discontinued the program <laughs> because they found it had the opposite effect. They hoped it would like increase productivity. And in fact, it had the opposite effect. These people realized they started thinking about things like capitalism and what it's sort of, uh, you know, and what the other kind of human values were. And um, <laughs> So it's just, there's, there have been some fascinating academic studies of this. But why, why sell my labor when I could rejoice? Yeah, and, and maybe I should be spending more time with my family yeah. or, you know, at my church or whatever. Yeah. You know, maybe I shouldn't be prioritizing this job over everything else. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, I think there's a kind of freedom that comes, a freedom of thinking that comes, you know, with, with the kind of education we've been talking about. That's great, that's, yeah, um, yeah. That's a wonderful anecdote. I'm gonna that's not that. instrumental. That's just has to do with our, you know, yeah. No, that's exactly right. That's great, and that's a good a uh, good segue to y'all to the positive vision that y'all that y'all outline in the in the sort of final third of the piece. Uh, so, returning to Bloom, you say that his error is that he supposes that questions about the virtuous life and just societies could be addressed only within the confines of academia. But then you but then you quickly say, oddly and surely unwittingly, many liberal academics in the humanities appear to agree, at least practically speaking. You say it is striking how many of his, him, uh, Bloom's liberal critics, even as they profess their faith in the university's democratic function, simultaneously reinforce his vision of an ignorant and benighted populace looming outside the campus gates. Yeah, so talk a little bit, well, no, well, before, before I have a couple of questions. I, I, wanna, uh, I wanna ask you about this kind of tension between what is uh, what seems to be to some extent an irreducibly elite fair and the democratic potential you see that it holds. But before we get there, tell me a little bit uh, about the sort of pra the practicality of this concrete positive vision. Um, how how what what would the world look like you know, <laughs> if 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 you and Anastasia had your way in the next ten years? <laughs> if things went, if everybody just followed y'all's advice, what would it look like practically for uh, higher ed? What would it look like for academics and scholars? What would it look like for institutions, like institution building, uh, if if uh, humanistic education is not is not uh, reserved uh, reserved between the between the you know in the ivory tower uh, as it were. Um, that I, I'd love to hear some either existing examples or mm. like, oh, well, it, it could mean it could be moving in these directions. <laughs> yeah, it was a scary thought, people paying attention to Anastasia and I right. taking right. our advice. But, um, uh, well, so, I mean, one place to start, obviously, would be with secondary school education. And we, I think, you know, there are countries like France, for instance, that teaches philosophy in high school to everybody. You know, and um, I think there is something, uh, I think that given that way more Americans go through secondary school education and public education than go to four-year colleges, 
this is the first place that I would, that I would want to introduce, you know, and, and, and I'm no expert on this, but it sure seems like uh, secondary school has been moving in the opposite direction for the last couple decades away, you know, with less and less funding and time for the humanities, more and more focus on sciences and preparing people for jobs or, you know, and I, I think that, um, you know, I think in it, like, again, in a democratic society, this is something there just should be a much more robust uh, uh, literature, philosophy, history, education that people are getting, writing, in, in, uh, in, but not just based on skills, not just based on teaching you how to write or critical think or whatever, but actually really exposing you to the traditions of these, of these disciplines um, uh, and, and traditions of thought. So that's one place, I mean, that's one obvious place to look. But outside of that, I mean, I guess one thing we were just trying to sort of push a New York Times reader to think about is there are people all over this country that give huge amounts of money to their universities that claim to care a lot about the humanities. And this is the, particularly to elite universities. And this is how they think they can support them. But there are so many other ways and other kinds of programs. And so some of the kinds of things we pointed to, I mean, there are magazines, which is one thing that I think was one sort of small node that I think magazines that are trying to do real kind of intellectual that aren't just pushing a political position or, 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 you know, trying to, you know, but they're actually trying to do this kind of work in public. And obviously I have some investment in that, but that's only, I mean, that's never going to be the main solution. Um, I think that, uh, the solution the kind of, everyone's uh, subscribed to the point. That's the <laughs> yes. I mean, of course we would suggest that, but, uh, I think that, you know, the grant, we mentioned the Graham school in the piece, which is a continuing education program in Chicago. That's uh, just a quick story. When we were, cleaning out my grandparents' house uh, when my grandmother died about 10 years ago. I remember finding, she and my grandfather were children of the depression. She never went to college. He uh, went, but sort of wasn't able to pay for his diploma and you know, worked as a lawyer his whole life. She was a homemaker. And uh, we found this shelf of books from the Graham School with their, you know, Nicomachean ethics, with their notes and the margins, you know, uh, and their, and their, and, you know, these were things they did in their 60s and 70s. And um, I just, I don't know, there was something very inspiring to me about that idea. Uh, and, and I think that that's, um, you know, so the idea of continuing education is one thing I just think should be much more prominent. There are so many people, even that we run into in the point, who talk about wanting to stay in touch with the liberal arts education they did receive in college, but not feeling like they have very robust means to do so uh, once they leave. Um, so, you know, uh, beyond that, I mean, yeah, so I think there just can be a lot of extra academic in institutions. And then we also mention um, a program called Books at Work, which is about sort of bringing reading groups to, to, um, to, to, to professional settings. Uh, there's, you know, some people said they wished we included some of these prison reading programs, some of which are rooted through universities. Uh, I totally agree with that, that those are also like, you know, ways in which you can really bring, you know, uh, yeah, bring another population of people, this kind of education. And so there are lots of ways it can be done. I mean, there are lots of institutions for it. I think that, um, some people brought up ideas such as teach-ins, which is another form of public uh, education. That's on a different model than what we're suggesting. And I think one distinction we tried to make in the piece that sort of bridges the, the criticism of academia with some of what we were talking about to go beyond academia is that what we don't want is places where academics teach uh, sort of uh, set people's opinions right. You know, here's the academic research. We're going to present it to you. We're going to show you what the right way to think about this topic is. And I think that's often a temptation for academics who go into the public sphere, um, or even worse, to just sort of spout their political opinions and then claim some kind of scholarly authority for them. Um, I think those are, there are temptations of certain kinds of ways that public uh, humanities can happen. That, uh, that we wanted to sort of draw a distinction between, that we want to emphasize these places, the ways in which um, the public humanities can really offer kids, adults, senior citizens, ways to think through things they're going through in their lives and not just sort of um, 
you know, here's information or lessons on how you should, how you should think about these issues. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. I, I actually think that's a, that's a nice, that's a nice uh, answer also to the, to the, to the democratic question that if, if uh, humanistic education construed as broadly as possible suffuses society uh, beginning, beginning with uh, public education uh, con continuing in one's job, but maybe in, in your, you know, high labor years, uh, uh, having children and a family, right. maybe you're doing, maybe you're doing less of it. I've got four young at home. I have less time in the evenings than other people might. But as you say, referring to that, your, your grandparents and that lovely story, uh, maybe empty nesters have time that they can use to <laughs> read Aristotle, uh, uh, or read, uh, read other, and you see, you know, you see a lot of those people we mentioned in the article, there have been huge upticks even during the quarantine and people going into book clubs, people doing Zoom lectures. And, I, and you know, I just think academics, you know, this is just like a, sort of an aside, but obviously, like we say, a lot of academics, no matter what happens or what I write, what any of us write, there are going to be a lot of academics that aren't going to be able to have the careers they want in academia or they had envisioned right. in the coming years. Yeah. And one of the things I would hope like it would be great if we could build some institutions outside of academia where they could still find employment and ways to speak to people about the things they care about, um, you know, in, in these, in these alternate, uh, in these alternate forms. Yeah. And, and, and that as a society that we would value those things the same way we do yeah. a professor, you know, yeah. and I think that's, we have a long way to go to get there because I don't think that's how we think about it now. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, even as you say that, I, I, I'm a theologian and uh, I have a kind of native audience um, that, that exists beyond, uh, beyond the confines of academia that would still be there whether or not I had a job here, that is. And, uh, I, and I work at a, at a Christian university. And one of the things that many of us do, including me, is in non-COVID time on Sunday morning, we're often uh, teaching class at a local church before or after worship. And, you know, uh, just ordinary uh, lay people, you know, they love it. They eat it up. You know, they, they, want the, they want the knowledge that they don't have access to in their daily jobs or their ordinary reading. Uh, they're hungry for it. Uh, they're not hungry for dumbing it down. They're hungry for, uh, for more and they want, they want depth, they want breadth, uh, they want the meat. Um, yeah. and, and seeing that is, can be very invigorating seeing that, that, and, and I, 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 uh, I have colleagues in other disciplines. It might be English or it might be something else that I think lack sometimes the ability to see that this, this does exist outside of my classroom. There is desire, there is payoff. Um, that that, that, yeah, that's overwhelmingly been my experience too. I've had some of my most fun, you know, intellectual experiences outside of academic context and outside of even the sort of usual public intellectual journalistic contexts. And one of the, we link in the op-ed when we talk about the Books at Work program to an article that was written for The Point by an English professor, I think she was at Oberlin, who talked about doing this program and how skeptical she was at the beginning that these people, the nurses or the, or the doctors or the accountants, whatever, who she was talking to were gonna wanna uh, talk about literature. And she did find that there was an adjustment period. She had, to, she, had to, she had to, in a way, go to a much more basic way of teaching than what she was, than what she was used to at, at university because, again, she had been taught more in this critique mode and with the, with the, with the readers in the, in the professions, it was more about, you know, here's a story about divorce. Have any of you been through a divorce? What was it like? But what's interesting is she, she gradually sort of learns that there's a real value to teaching this way. And it becomes something she then starts to take back into her classroom with her undergrads and, and finds that for them too, it's in, in many ways, it, it allows them to connect in a deeper way. Um, with the material. So yeah, I think that there's, and that's such a good example of like, what I think is important is that when we go out into these public settings, we see that like, we have things to learn too. And this really is like a dialogue. Um, 
and 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 it's a challenge that that is uh, an intellectual challenge too to think about how you how you speak to people and what's most important in these books. It challenges us to really think about that outside of our academic disciplines or our habits. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Uh, I have a final final topic. It's almost an addendum, though it does connect to the to the conversation we've had. I want to ask. Uh, about the point and uh, in two respects. First, just I'd love to hear any thoughts as an editor of, uh, of uh, a vibrant and, and, and wonderful magazine of ideas. Uh, the last 10 years, there's been a time of upheaval and uh, many challenges nationally. And now we're faced with, you know, the, this summer, uh, faced with both a global pandemic and uh, racial unrest, injustice, etc. So, uh, on the one hand, I'd love to just hear uh, your your vision, or maybe the editor's vision for a magazine like mm -hmm. The Point, and what it's like to edit a magazine like The Point right now. And then, uh, second, as I mentioned, I'm a theologian, uh, and uh, one of the things that I love about The Point, but it's also something I feel like I've noticed about some other venues. For example, uh, that the Los Angeles Review of Books comes to mind. To me, from the outside, not English and lit, et cetera, not, not a literary critic, it seems to me that there has been a kind of opening to explicitly and unapologetically religious uh, or spiritual or theological writing uh, that seems new and fresh to me and very welcome, not in a kind of, you know, taking a partisan or a religious viewpoint, but rather basically uh, all are welcome. And if you are, if you are a, a writer, a scholar, a thinker with a perspective, with an argument, uh, with prose that we all want to read, we want you to sit at the table rather than uh, secu secular, uh, secularity meaning everyone sits at the table but you, rather it meaning uh, everyone, regardless of viewpoint, religious or non-religious, there's not this kind of qualitative difference that marks a, you know, the cordons off certain certain voices. And so, A, I just really appreciate that about uh, a, a, a place like The Point or LARB and others. Uh, and then I'm wondering if that, if I'm noticing something real, is that a real phenomenon? And if so, uh, I'd love to hear about it. Yeah, I think you definitely are noticing something real. Um, let me, so let me, I think I can kind of try and answer both questions by taking a step back and say, you know, you, you asked about running the point and how we think of what we're doing and uh, during this 10 year period. And it's a well-timed question because we have this book coming out that's about the 10 year, the first 10 years of the magazine. And it made us think a lot about this. And, you know, when we start, so when we started the point, something that I only later, I really was so naive about a lot of things when we started the magazine, and I didn't know a whole lot even about the history of little magazines. Um, and uh, something that's unusual about the point is we really didn't start it as a political project. Uh, it was not guided by a political ethos or a religious one. It was guided by a kind of, uh, or a literary one even, it was guided by a kind of philosophical idea. Could you, could you create a magazine that, that, that uh, embodied some of, the, some of what we liked about philosophical dialogue, the idea of dialogue between different perspectives? Um, it goes back to that thing I was saying about the way that, you know, we studied uh, books at UChicago had this, had this, idea that these books spoke directly to our lives and they were in dialogue with one another about incommensurable values. And could you have a magazine that sort of spoke to that? Um, it wasn't, for, but I think, you know, all of us who started the magazine probably considered ourselves on the left in some broad sense. Yeah. I don't think we thought we were doing anything terribly politically uh, interesting or, or, or contrarian or anything. And it was about five or six years until, uh, in a way that role started to get thrust upon us where we started to notice that just by trying to have this dialogue and to include, which meant including conservative voices, uh, religious voices when we could, um, and, and, and sometimes voices that were critical of the left, that we started to be a become a target of a growing um, sort of group of progressive intellectuals, public intellectuals and academics who seemed to have less and less tolerance for what we were doing and consider it threatening and, and, and were very hostile to it. And 
So it was interesting, and this, this uh, I would say, you know, you saw it start to pick up around the time of Occupy Wall Street, uh, and then it sort of intensified as that time went on, and Trump was elected, and um, the name of the book, The Opening of the American Mind, besides being the reference to Bloom, speaks to sort of two separate things in this 10-year period. One, that America itself had its mind open about what was possible in America, you know, um, in some ways, first with Obama and then again with Trump. Right. Uh, and secondly, that, uh, but secondly, that it has become increasingly, diff increasingly a challenge in this climate to keep one's mind open, you know, to, to remain open to the views of our fellow citizens and our fellow, you know, uh, intellectuals even. And so that second thing I think has more, uh, I think in the last five years or six years has become a bigger part of the points identity uh, than I think we envisioned it being when we started the magazine. But I, but I think it flows from the initial commitment of the magazine to this notion of dialogue and pluralism. Um, but that the fact that the culture has sort of changed around us and made those, those kind of things more controversial to stand up for, I think in a robust way, um, and yeah, to speak directly to the religious, you know, and so that's, that's both, that's both a challenge of running the magazine right now. I mean, we have a lot of pluralism, even within our own staff and we have people on our own staff who didn't like that op-ed. We have people on our own staff who are critical of various different things we're, we're, we do, um, from both sides actually. And, um, so, uh, so that's a challenge, you know, as an editor and for all of us, I think, trying to keep that all together. And yep. there are sometimes really strong disagreements, but I, it also, I think, speaks, I hope, to the importance of what we're trying to do, because I, there's a reason not a lot of publications or institutions do this. It's, it's hard. Um, and so, uh, but I think it's important, you know, um, in the current climate more than, more even than it was before. But, and in terms of religion, I mean, yeah, I think you're probably right about the LARB. I can't speak, you know, to their sort of internal process, but I, I know at the point for me, it was really important. There was so much talk in progressive magazines about diversity and yet such an obvious blind spot in my mind uh, with regard to religion in a country that remains, even though the numbers may be declining, quite religious. Yeah. And I remember, you know, I mean, I remember reading um, in the New York Times after the Trump election that the executive editor, Dean Baquette, said something like, yeah, we've realized uh, we probably need to put a second reporter on religion. We're just not understanding it well enough or something. And I thought, you know, like this is, not only is it crazy they only have one reporter covering religion, but religion is not just something you cover. Right. It's a whole way of thinking that informs the way of the worldviews of, of millions and millions of Americans. Right. And so to me, to be a truly pluralistic magazine, that was really, really important to have that perspective. And, you know, we have an editor named Robert Kehoe who went to Wheaton College. Oh, okay. uh, he was someone that I brought on, you know, probably four or five years into the magazine. He came to us just as a writer, but it was really important to me to have, it's been really important to have him be part of the magazine because he connected us with, even though we had the desire before, I just didn't have a lot of connections with the sort of intellectual community, uh, religious intellectual communities. Um, and he really helped with that and allowed us to do the church symposium in, in, in issue 16, I think it was, which was, uh, maybe it was 14, I don't know. But anyway, it was, which was, um, I think really important. And I think signaled to a lot of readers, maybe like you, that this is something we take seriously and, uh, and, and really want to be part of the, among the worldviews that are represented robustly yeah. in the magazine. And, um, I think you'll find, you know, for instance, in the in the sex symposium in the new issue too, we have a piece by a monk. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. And no, uh, work. yeah, I was that's that's one of the things that prompted the question. Yeah, yeah. So I think that um, uh, that's it's not always easy. And um, I remember in the church symposium, we had an article in the same issue that was about like S and M, and and we gave an event at a Christian. Uh, institution in Wisconsin and there were some people that got very angry about the fact that this sexually lewd piece was in the same issue so you know it's a challenge in every respect but I, I, I guess I feel like to the extent the magazine has a kind of um, you know an a distinctive function right now in, in, in the cultural space that it's in it's a challenge that's worth uh, worth trying to wade through and I, and I, I hope that readers 
you know, appreciate it or that yeah. find readers that appreciate it. Yeah, no, I think that, I think that's right. Another, another, I think y'all do it very well. I think that, um, I was thinking of, uh, yesterday I got the latest issue of the Hedgehog Review in, mm. and, 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 oh, they and, definitely are the same. Yeah. yeah they're similar. You know, you have, a, you have like a committed social conservative doing one piece and then, uh, Sam Adler Bell, why I am a socialist, you know, yeah. uh, and, and you have everything in between or sort of off the map and everyone does it differently. Uh, they have a different ethos than y'all. Y'all have a different ethos than LARB and, and other places. Uh, and I do think it embodies the very challenge that you've articulated in this conversation, which is uh, what does it mean to not only acknowledge, but to affirm that kind of pluralism and to give voice to it and to surrender yourself to it, to learn from it and to encounter it. Uh, without I think something, something that's important is it doesn't mean centrism. Right, or right. You, exactly. or you just, you know, exactly. and this is something the point sometimes gets accused of, which drives me crazy, because we yeah. couldn't be further from a centrist magazine. We've never published a centrist. That's probably the <laughs> least represented view. Right. Yeah. You're for diversity except for centrists. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's just not a point of view we find that interesting yeah, for the most part. Right. So, yeah. so, you know, it's not a deep philosophical view. So, it, so it's, just, it's just an important distinction, I think, to make, because there's yeah. a certain it speaks to the habits that we have about thinking about politics and ideology, that there's a certain way of thinking that it's like, well, if you give voice to these different views, you yourself must just be a centrist. Right. And I remember Anastasia actually put it really well at an event we were at where someone asked a question like that. They said, well, so you guys are basically centrist. She said, no, we're the ones that think taking other values and ideas seriously doesn't make you a centrist. It makes you a thoughtful person. It doesn't hollow out. It doesn't, no. it, do, it doesn't average if you have enough to the right and enough to the left, you average right. Oh, no, and we publish pieces that are very passionate in, in, and very committed to the points of view they take right. up. Right. Uh, and that's important to us. Um, right. So it's not about not being committed or not being, um, uh, not being uh, you know, uh, being centrist. It, it, it's about that thinking, that the activity of thinking requires, you know, this, um, this, this, this activity that we've talked about of, of, of really being attracted to and in, you know, exposed to uh, ideas that are different from yours. Yeah, no, and that's, I think that you've articulated the challenge well, how to have an ethos, have an identity, have a coherent editorial vision uh, that does welcome very strong, very passionate, committed voices uh, from a variety of, of, variety of perspectives. Um, well, that's wonderful. This has been great. Uh, Thanks for this, John. Uh, I, and speaking on behalf of the Liberating Arts Project, we, we really appreciate it. <laughs>